The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Nelson Mandela, the former South African president, recently passed away in his home in Johannesburg. And he did so with his family surrounding him. And during those final days, as Nelson Mandela was dying, his daughter, in an interview, told the interviews that her father is, quote, still with us, strong, courageous. Even for a lack of a better word, on his deathbed, he is teaching us lessons. Lessons of patience, of love, lessons of tolerance, end quote. You know, we can learn a lot from someone when they are on their deathbed. It is in the final moments of life when people are finally able to step back and they're able to look at the big picture. They're able to see all of their life and they're able to cut through all of the noise and the distractions of life and they can begin to see what it is that really matters. You know, maybe you've come to church today and you find yourself caught up in the noise and the distractions of life. Maybe you find yourself distracted by the weather and all of the ice that is outside. Maybe you find yourself distracted by a looming deadline or maybe an illness that has been ailing you for far too long. Well, today, we are going to be stepping inside to this death chamber. We're going to be stepping into the scene, this final moments of the patriarch, Jacob, the last patriarch in the book of Genesis. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been observing, we've been following along as Jacob's family has gone from Canaan to Egypt. They have taken refuge in Egypt because of a famine. And that is the place, Egypt would be the place where this family, these 12 brothers, would grow into a mighty nation. Egypt would act as an incubator where God would fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would become a mighty people. Last week, we saw as Jacob, in his final moments, asked his son Joseph to come into his chambers, and he brought with him Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he blessed them. And now Jacob has summoned all 12 of his sons to himself for one final word. And we have a privilege. We have the privilege of peering back into the curtain, behind the curtain, and observing this intimate family interaction, an interaction that the Lord reveals to us, and he reveals to it to us for a purpose, so that we also might listen in and hear what it is that Jacob has to say to his sons, this godly man in his final moments on earth, that we might hear that he speaks to his sons of their past, of their future, and of the lion who will rule over all. He speaks of their past, their future, and the lion. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look into these final moments of Jacob's life, these final words as he addresses his sons, would you teach us? Would you give us ears to hear, to listen to the words that he has to say, that they would not only apply to the 12 that were before him back then, but also to us today. Would you allow us to hear the message, to cut through the distractions of life, and understand what it is that you want us to know. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Genesis 49, so if you open up your Bibles to Genesis 49, that's on page 42 of the Red Bible and 81 of the Children's Bible. And we are going to begin in verse 1. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." This family meeting that we are observing, that we step into this scene, is beginning in a very awkward and tense way. Reuben is the firstborn, and traditionally in those days, the firstborn child was due a blessing that was significantly greater than the blessing of all his brothers. But what we see here is that Reuben does not get the blessing of the firstborn. While Jacob recognizes in verse 3 that Reuben should be receiving the firstborn blessing, that he should be preeminent in dignity and power, Reuben, in fact, has not acted like the firstborn. Instead, Jacob's dying words to his eldest son are, You are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Imagine if those were your father's dying words to you. How must Reuben have been feeling in this moment as his dad tells him, that blessing you were expecting, you will not get it. In Genesis 35, we are told what happened and why it is that Reuben will not receive the firstborn blessing. We're told how Reuben went up and he slept with his father's concubine. And because of that, he is now facing the consequences of those actions. Well, Jacob doesn't start there. He keeps on going. And he turns to Simeon and to Levi. And imagine what they must be thinking after this shock as Reuben is given this hard news. They're probably thinking, well, am I going to get the blessing? Will it fall to us? We're next in line. But no, they did not receive the blessing of the firstborn. In verse 6, Jacob says, let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men, and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. 
You see, back in Genesis 34, Dinah, their sister, was raped. And in retaliation, Simeon and Levi went and they slaughtered every single male that was in the entire city that was responsible. And Jacob rebukes them for their bloodlust. And he curses them in verse 7, saying that they will be scattered in Israel. They also do not get the blessing of the firstborn. In fact, as we keep on reading, and we will, it is not until Joseph that we finally see the blessing of the firstborn being given. So we're going to skip ahead to verse 22. And starting in verse 22, we see Jacob reflecting on Joseph's past. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. See, Joseph had been promised a very great blessing. From, a, from the time of a child, he had had these dreams, dreams that his family would come and bow down to him. But as we read in Genesis, Joseph's life was full of hardship. Although he had these dreams of great authority, he experienced great hardship. There were many that came out to attack him, enemies even from within his own family. And yet, in the midst of all of that, Joseph remained unmoved. Jacob, in speaking of Joseph's past, says the archers bitterly attacked him, yet his bow remained unmoved. Joseph continued to live faithfully. He continued to live a righteous life in spite of all of the trouble that was before him. And because of that, the blessing of the firstborn would fall to him. In verses 25 and 26, we see that happening as the word bless shows up six times with respect to Joseph. Starting in verse 25, it says, By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. The son who would inherit the majority of his father's power and his wealth was Joseph. The firstborn blessing fell upon him because he had been faithful. See, Jacob, in his final moments, with his sons all before him, looks into their past, and he does not pull any punches. He does not gloss over their past mistakes. He does not gloss over their past successes. He does not sweep anything under the rug. Jacob speaks clearly about their past, the good and the bad. Just as God, our Father, sees our past clearly. The Lord looks into our past, the good and the bad, and he sees it very clearly, and he does not sweep a single thing under the rug. And because of that, there are consequences. There were consequences that Reuben and Simeon and Levi had to face 
because of their past. And there were consequences that Joseph would face because of his past as well. And the same is true for us. There are consequences for our past. You know, uh, we were talking this morning with the guys who were folding the bulletins, and we were talking about table saws. Table saws are a very useful tool, but they can also be a very dangerous tool. They're very sharp, and they work very fast. And because of that, when you're using a table saw, the correct way to use it is you use some sort of stick or a guide in order to push whatever it is that you are cutting towards the blade. You're not supposed to use your hand because that's dangerous. But in spite of this very clear direction, there is many an experienced woodworker out there that if you look at their hands, you'll notice that maybe a piece or one or two fingers just happens to be missing. That's because in a moment of foolishness, although they knew the correct way to do it, although they knew the directions, they did not follow them. And using their hand, they would push whatever it was they were cutting and the the wood would kick and the blade would cut and that would be that. Just as there are lasting consequences for not following the operating instructions for a table saw, there are lasting consequences for not following the operating instructions that God gives to us, the directions for our lives. We see that there are consequences for how Reuben and Simeon and Levi live their lives. And there are consequences for the way that we live our lives. And right now, you may be thinking about poor decisions, things that you had done in your past that were wrong, that were sinful. But there is good news. You see, the good news is that God is a God of forgiveness and a God of redemption. He redeems our past failures In verse 7, we see that Simeon and Levi are cursed. They are told that they will be divided and they will be scattered in Israel. And that is what happened. Levi will become the tribe of Levi from whom we know the Levitical priests. The Levitical priests did not receive a land inheritance in the promised land. No, instead they were spread, they were scattered throughout They were scattered amongst 48 cities amongst the promised land because they had a special task. The Levitical priests were specifically tasked with serving the Lord in his temple and at his altars. Moses, Aaron, Samuel were a few Levites. The Levitical priests were scattered throughout just as God had said, but it was not a scattering of curse. It was a scattering of high honor because they alone were in this high position to serve the Lord in this particular way. Simeon, on the other hand, did receive a land inheritance, a very small land inheritance, and it happened to be located in the middle, in the midst of Judah, a much larger tribe with a much larger inheritance. In fact, Simeon was so small, and because he was in the midst of Judah, Judah actually sort of consumed Simeon and absorbed it into Judah to the point where Simeon basically didn't exist anymore. Just like Levi, Simeon would be scattered about, absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And because of that, Simeon would reap 
all of the blessings that fell upon Judah, all of the benefits that went to Judah were received by Simeon because he had been absorbed by them. See, God redeems the sinful acts of Simeon and of Levi, and he turns the curse into a blessing. And that is what he does with our sins. Through Jesus Christ, the sins of our past, the mistakes of our past, are redeemed, and they go from curse to blessing. Well, as we continue to look at this family meeting, you're going to notice that this is not like other deathbed situations because Jacob is not only reminiscing about the past. He's not only looking back at what did happen, but Jacob also looks ahead into the future, into what will happen. Genesis 49 is also prophecy, looking into the past and looking into the future. Follow along with me as we start in verse 13. Zebulun, he says, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Nephtali is a doe lit loose that bears beautiful fawns. And skipping to verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Jacob goes through each and every single son, and he tells them what is going to become of them. In fact, this passage is so accurate as to describing the 12 tribes of Israel that liberal scholars looking at it actually believe that this passage must have been an addition that was added much later after all the history had already happened because how could these descriptions fit the tribes so well? Well, we have an answer. It is because we serve a God that knows the future and that speaks of it. Look with me at verse 27. Benjamin. Why would Jacob tell Benjamin, his youngest son, the son that up to this point in the story has been completely passive, who has been depicted as young and small, free from conflict, And yet, Jacob calls him a ravenous wolf. Really? Why would he call him that? Well, the reason is because in the future, the tribe of Benjamin, although they are small, they become warriors who are renowned for their skill and for their bravery. The tribe of Benjamin was a very aggressive tribe, and they did everything very aggressively, whether it was bad or good. It was the tribe of Benjamin that horrifically assaulted the concubine in Judges 19. And it was the tribe of Benjamin, the Benjamite Jonathan, who courageously stood beside his friend David, even when Saul was trying to kill him. The tribe of Benjamin was a very aggressive tribe. They were warriors. He is an aggressive, ravenous wolf. 
Or how about Gad? In verse 19, it says, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. What does that mean? If you heard that, you'd be like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll take it. But we look back and we know that the land that the tribe of Gad would eventually inherit in the promised land was sandwiched between enemy forces. The Moabites were to the south, the Ammonites were to the east, and the Arameans were to the northeast. The Gadites were constantly under attack. They were constantly under threat. And because of that, in order to fight to survive, they would become skilled warriors, renowned warriors using stealth and surprise to defeat their enemies. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. You see, Jacob spoke about the future of his sons with absolute certainty and with absolute authority because it had been revealed to him by a God who knows not only the future, but he actually sovereignly ordains it. There was a time in my life when I was completely taken back by the events that occurred. And in my moment of surprise and frustration, a friend came to me and reminded me that, you know what? God was not surprised by what happened. He was not surprised in the least because God is never surprised. God is not surprised by the trials and the tribulations that come upon you. He is not surprised by whatever it is that you may be struggling with right now. God knows. God knows where we came from and he knows where we are going. And so we ask ourselves, can we trust this God? Can we trust this God who knows our future? Well, as we've been looking at this passage, I skipped over a part. I skipped over verse 8 through 12. And in these verses, we see the blessing of Judah. So if you will look with me at verse 8. It says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now, as Jacob speaks about the future of Judah, you might find yourself a little bit confused, sort of wondering, all right, if Joseph is getting the blessing of the firstborn, why does it say in verse 8 that your father's sons shall bow down to you? Well, if you trace the history of Israel, you will find out that the tribe of Joseph is the tribe that continues on, that has power, that has the authority. In fact, it is the tribe of specifically Ephraim that continues on and leads the people of God. It is Joshua, the descendant of Joseph, who leads the people into the promised land. And yet, somewhere along the line, the line of Joseph fails. 
Even though Joseph was greatly praised for his faithfulness to God, even though Joseph had remained faithful to God in the midst of great struggle, they failed. Not even a servant as righteous as Joseph, the one through whom the blessing was poured out upon Egypt and all the nations, could remain faithful forever. Apart from God, we do not have hope. But we can trust this God. We can trust this God because the God who knows the future, the God who knows what will happen, has not left us to ourselves. See, he knew that even the faithful tribe of Joseph would eventually fail, and so he provided something that was greater than Joseph. Through the line of Judah, God provided a king. In those days, the lion, the animal, the lion, represented royalty, represented that in Israel and also in other Near Eastern countries. And there are seven different Hebrew words that refer to a lion, and Jacob uses three of them here as he describes Judah. Judah, from whom the scepter shall not depart. So the question we ask ourselves is, who is this kingly lion? Who is this lion of Judah? Well, in verses 11 and 12, we see that the lion is incredibly prosperous. In verse 11, it says that he binds his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, the vine that we're talking about here is a a grapevine that you would get harvest grapes from, and from that you would get wine. And there's a few things to notice here. First of all, if you tie a donkey to a vine, what's going to happen? The donkey's going to run away because he's just going to snap the vine and he's going to go. So... The type of vine that you can successfully tie a donkey to has to be pretty thick. I mean, this is a massive vine that you can tie your donkey to, and he's not going to get away. And the second thing that we can notice from this is that this person apparently has great wealth. Because what is a donkey going to do if you tie him to a bunch of grapes? He's going to eat them. And so this owner, this wealthy owner does not care if his donkey eats his vine because he has so much abundance, so much prosperity, so much wealth that he can just tie his donkey to his vine. And it's no big deal. In fact, he washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The wealth is just overflowing for this king. the Lion of Judah is incredibly prosperous. In verses 8 and 10, we see that his reign is total, it is complete, and it is forever. It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. It will go on and on forever and ever. He will always be in charge. In verse 8, Jacob tells Judah that All of his other sons will bow down before him. All of Israel will bow before this king. And all the people will come to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This lion, this king, has total reign and complete obedience. And in verses 8 and 9, we see that this lion, this king, crushes his enemies. In verse 8, it says, Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
He grabs his enemies by the neck and he defeats them. In verse 9, he says, describing him as a lion, that he stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The posture of this lion is one of pouncing, one of ready to attack. I had a friend who went to Africa, and he told me that when you hear the lions roaring in the distance, it does not compare to what you see on TV or in the zoo. There is a power there. There is strength there, and it is frightening. He is a lion, and he destroys his enemies. The Lion of Judah would become a term. It would become a term that would represent the Davidic king. David was the first of these kings. David was of the line of Judah, and he became king, and all of Israel did bow down before him. But you see, there has to be more. There has to be more to it than just that. Because even at the greatest height of the Israelite kingdom, it still paled in comparison to what this passage is describing. And in Revelation, in the very end of the Bible, suddenly it all makes sense. In Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, as John is in the throne room of God, as he is seeing this vision of what is to come, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see, the lion is the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The lion of Judah is Jesus, the one who was slain on the cross. And by doing that, by going to the cross, by dying and rising again, Jesus Christ, the lion, defeats his enemies. He crushes them. And his enemy is sin and death. Jesus Christ is king forever, and his kingdom is glorious beyond all belief. God knew our past, and he knew their past, and he knows our future. And because he loves us, he sends us a king, the Lion of Judah, so that his enemies and our enemies might be crushed. Now, I do not know what the condition is of your heart this morning. Maybe, maybe past failures are, having, are sitting heavy upon you and you're feeling great regret. God knows your past. And God has violently grabbed your sin by the neck and he has destroyed it on the cross. Or maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with the future. Maybe you're dealing with fear and anxiety about what is to come and what may be. But God has looked into the future. He knows it. And those of us who come to the lion and obey him are offered prosperity beyond our wildest imagination. 
And no matter where your heart is this morning, as you sit here listening to this dying man in his deathbed, as he gazes back over time, and as he speaks back into the past and also out into the future, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say to his sons about what shall come, what shall happen in the days to come. You see, the Lion of Judah is going to rule over all. Will you obediently come to him? Because he is our only hope. C.S. Lewis in the book, The Silver Chair, writes a scene between Jill Pohl, a girl in the story, and Aslan, who is the lion who represents Christ. And Jill meets Aslan at the edge of a river. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you know our past, you know our future, and that you have come to redeem us, to forgive us of our sin, and to give us a future that is secure and that is prosperous. So, Lord, may we turn to you, to your king, to Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, in confidence, knowing that you are the Holy One of Israel, and you are the only way. Amen.